uh, we are coming through Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, you can see by just what we have got into so far that it's a great chapter. Um, it's got a lot of good uh, practical things in it. Uh, uh, it's been, and rightly so, it's been called God's Hall of Fame. Um, you know, because uh, it lists all the different uh, great people uh, in the Old Testament. And, you know, the theme of the chapter is, is, um, uh, is to uh, show that uh, these people survived by faith through all that they went through. And it's a, really a good uh, um, study in a number of ways. You know, obviously, historically to the Jews, <coughs> it shows them that faith was the key that got these people through everything in the Old Testament. And uh, from a practical standpoint, it's a great uh, study for you and for me because it shows that, uh, you know, how important faith really is. Uh, and we learn by each one of these. You know, the other uh, Thursday night, we talked about character studies. You know, a kid asked a question about Timothy. And, um, you know, I showed you how that important that uh, uh, that really, really is. Character studies are, are an invaluable way of, of really learning your Bible. And you, you saw from um, the examples that we looked at, we talked about four guys in the first aspect of it. And then we talked about uh, Abraham and Moses uh, last time, how that they are really a great example of everything. So... Um, you know, this is this is a great book that on a lot of different levels. But the thing you want to see, uh, and we aren't we aren't there yet. We'll get there today. Is look at verse thirty-five. This is the theme of 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 Hebrews, and it says, "Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection." So this whole thing of Hebrews is about to the nation of Israel, uh, to them, showing them that there is a better way. And of course, this great chapter on faith uh, that he talks about is a chapter that talks about how that uh, these, these, these guys were, uh, you know, they were really, um, what they went through, they got through it by faith. But now in Christ, there is a better way. And you see this all the way through, uh, all the way through uh, the book here. Now we're going to pick it up today, uh, and the last week we talked, last time we talked about Moses, uh, when we ended up there, you know, like verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, uh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Uh, through faith he kept the Passover and sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyeth the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as dry land, which the Egyptians are swaying, a swing is an old English word means to try to go across or to try to do something. A swing to do or drown. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. Now we move from him into, uh, into, uh, into uh, Joshua here. And uh, we see uh, the great, you know, uh, we're going to see now some, some other guys that he's going to talk about here. And it's interesting to look at these to see how they, uh, how they really play out here. And he says, uh, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed seven days. Well, you know, we know that that's Joshua. And so, uh, you know, that's a whole story unto itself. 
And then he says, by faith the harlot Rahab uh, perished not uh, with them that believed not uh, when she received the spies with peace. Now Rahab shows up here, and uh, again, uh, she is a... um, uh, she's of questionable character, and yet we find her in God's Hall of Fame. Uh, through all of this, there's another theme rolling up here in this that you'll want to see. We'll talk about here uh, in a moment. And it says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not when she believed not when he had received the spies with peace. Uh, and what shall I more say? For the time would fall me to tell of Gideon and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, and of David, and also Samuel, uh, and of the prophets. Now, what you have here is a a list of these guys, and you want to look at each one of these. Gideon, you know, he starts out really good, but Gideon, again, when you study his life, uh, you're going to find that Gideon is not the best uh, example that you could find. He um, he doesn't, you know, he's always held up as someone that's really great, you know, as far as, you know, in, in, in lessons, everything. But when you study Gideon's life uh, through a character study, you'll find that, you know, he failed uh, simply because of the fact that he, you know, he didn't trust God. This, this thing about putting out the fleece is not a good biblical thing to do. In fact, it's a, it's a thing that really shows uh, that, um, you know, nothing, uh, y- y- nothing supersedes what God tells you. God told him uh, what was going to happen, and yet he couldn't believe God. And it's because of that that we find Gideon later on after the story that everybody, you know, loves to preach on and talk about, we actually find Gideon uh, falling into idolatry and, you know, and I, I, I make that parallel because that's, that's what happens with somebody who isn't satisfied and settled in what the Word of God actually says. And he falls into that, uh, just like God's people will today, because they're not going to follow through what the Word of God says. And then it says, and what shall more I say? He talks about Gideon, and then Barak, and then, of course, Samson. Samson, you know, is one of the biggest foul-ups anywhere in the Bible, and yet he's found in God's Hall of Fame. And then the next one is Jephthah, and Jephthah is, would be our poster child for what a bad father should be uh, and what a, a lousy Christian should be, yet here he is in God's Hall of Fame. And then, of course, we have David who commits the two sins that in the Old Testament there is no sacrifice for, adultery and murder, yet he's here. And if you look at this, you're going to find, and then he talks about Samuel and of the prophets. But with a trained eye, you should automatically see now that something's amiss here. First of all, Saul is not here. And, you know... Saul is, he doesn't do anything that is listed uh, that the other guys do here. I mean, Saul didn't commit adultery with anybody. He didn't murder anybody. As the record goes, it's, it's found here. He didn't do anything that, that these guys, that these did. And yet they're in the Hall of Fame and he is not. And the reason uh, for that is, is the fact that Saul 
when you go over to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, and the great story about Saul is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And this is where he, uh, you know, he disobeys the word of God when it comes to the sacrifice, and he, he takes on the uh, job of a priest when he has no business doing that. And for that, uh, you know, God cut him off, and in Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, uh, the Bible says that God took his mercy from him. And there's a lot of debate, uh, and, you know, I've heard it over the years between pastors, preachers, people, whatever, whether Saul went to heaven or not. And, you know, people um, go back and forth on it. And in the, ex, the, the answer simply is found in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 15. You just ask yourself the question, can a man go to heaven without God's mercy? And, of course, the answer to that is no. So that solves that particular problem in Saul. Obviously, Saul is a great picture of the Antichrist. And uh, so he's not found in God's Hall of Fame. And the Bible says that God took his mercy from him. And, uh, you know, you can bet pretty sure that, uh, that he's not in heaven. The other one that's missing here is Solomon. And that brings uh, up a lot of questions to people. I've, I've heard it discussed back and forth. Did, did Solomon uh, go to heaven? You know, uh, because of the fact that uh, what he did. And of course, uh, and here's how when you learn your Bible and you know your Bible, you can figure these little things out. Um, Saul, we know, the Bible clearly says, I mean, you can debate it all day long, but you need to come down to the definitive verse on it that God took his mercy from him. That ends that one. The other one is Solomon. And, you know, you don't find him here. So you'll have guys talking back and forth about did Solomon go to heaven or not. And, of course, the answer to that is found in the fact that when David, in Psalms uh, uh, 89, verse 20, I believe it is, when David got the sure mercies of David from God, that sure mercy didn't just apply to David, but it applied to everybody in his seed, his family. So that would include Solomon. So when, even though Solomon didn't make the cut here because of, of what he did, uh, you know, in splitting the kingdom and, and doing everything that he did when his boy took over, uh, he's not listed in the Hall of Fame, but it's clear that he uh, you know, from, from Psalms 89 that he made the cut when it went to about going to heaven because he's in that sure mercies of David mindset. It's things like that <clears throat> that you want to, you know, this is the value of really knowing your Bible, being able to put all those pieces together and see how that really works its way through. And so he talks about Gideon. He talks about uh, Samson, Jephthah, who is the guy who, as you remember, you know, the big mouth Christian guy who says, if God gives me the victory, I'm going to make a vow to God. I'm going to sacrifice the first thing I see when I come back. He had no business making that vow. As the deliverer of Israel, if he'd have just done what's right, God would have given him the victory. That's why God put him up there. But he's one of these guys who's always got to shoot his mouth off to show everybody how spiritual he is. So he did. And then so when he comes home, the first thing he sees is his daughter. And so he actually offers up his daughter for a sacrifice, which he didn't have to do. But here he is. And, uh, you know, and then you find David, as I said, and you find Samuel. But you don't find Saul and you don't find you know, Solomon. 
So it's a, it's a thing where when you, when you look at these two, then you begin to see and understand that uh, why they're not in there. And, uh, and then he says, through faith, subdued kingdoms, verse 33, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, <clears throat> out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant, uh, in fight, turn to flight the enemies of the aliens. Now, this is talking about everything else that happened that Israel did. And then verse 35, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, we know the word better here is the key word that we find all the way through the book of Hebrews. Now, what you have here is Another great truth that the reason why some of these, in our minds, questionable people are found in this passage of chapter, it, it brings up the great truth that, you know, man looketh on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. Now, what I'm about to say, I really can't explain because I, I don't know what God sees or what God's looking for, but I do understand the concept. The reason why these people are in here, Rahab, you got Gideon, you got Samson, you got Jephthah, and you got David, the reason why they're in here is because, you know, God saw something in them or had something, relationship with them that we don't see. And it was enough that even though God doesn't always, though he'll judge the action, the action does never override the attitude of heart. And God saw something in these guys. I couldn't even begin to tell you what it, it, it was, other than God saw something that in them that made them worthy, uh, that he looked past what they did uh, because of an attitude of heart that they had. That is a great, that is a great uh, 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 fundamental truth about all of us. You know, we have a tendency to judge everything and everybody by, by the actions we see. And I understand that. And I'm not, I'm not taking that away from anything. Obviously, you know, you, know you, you look at a person and the works that they do or whatever, you, we make our judgments on that and, and, and to an extent we should. But God doesn't just see what's on the outside. God sees what's on the inside. And many times what we see is the action is the evidence of a struggle that is going on between them and God that we always can't see. And because we can't see it, we just kind of paint everybody with the same broad brush. Now, I'm not even suggesting that there aren't Christians out there or people out there who are absolutely worthless and you know their their whole life is just a is just a you know a sham and you know I get that I'm not taking that away from anybody that that's obviously true but at the same time all these people here all had their issues from various degrees from you know uh to Samson uh to to Jephthah to to David and yet God saw something in them that overrode what the action was as far as God was concerned. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't pay a price for it. I want to make that clear. Jephthah had to live with the rest of his life. He killed his daughter. I mean, uh, it, it's so clear. 
Uh, David struggles with his own family and the mistakes that he makes. And, uh, you know, and it's a thing where Samson wound up being a suicide. So it's not a matter that they don't pay the price for what their action was. That's over here. It's that God sees the attitude of heart. That's over here. And what God sees in their hearts, as I said, I I couldn't begin to explain that to you. I I just know that that's the way that it works. And, uh, you know, and that works that way for, for everybody. And that's why the Bible says, you know, uh, we don't ever, we're not to judge people. The Bible says that he that is spiritual judgeth all things. And we don't judge what the people themselves, but we are allowed to judge what that person does. We judge it to the extent that I don't want to be a part of it. Uh, We uh, judge it to the extent that that isn't going to work for me. So it's a thing where he that is spiritual judgeth all things. And it's a, it's, a, it's a concept that, you know, I don't look at somebody and judge them, but if they're doing something that is totally outside the realm of anything biblical, then I don't want to be a part of it because that's not going to help me. We say it all the time. Everybody stands before God by themselves, and they have to give an account by themselves. I'm not going to give an account for you. You're not going to get an account for me. We're all going to give an account uh, as individuals to God. And that will be based on our attitude of heart with God. That's why you find these guys here. Um, and it's a great, uh, you know, it's just a great picture all through this chapter of giving us four examples of, of the four great keys to the concept of understanding faith. And then looking at the two guys uh, that, uh, that really represent the aspect of ministry. And then putting these people in here, showing you that the everything that we do will never exactly be based on our action, but will always be based on our attitude of heart. And you'll find people who, Christian people who deem themselves as great heart readers. I mean, they start questioning motives. They start questioning hearts. They start questioning attitudes. And my only, my only, thing to say to somebody like that, you better start working on your own first, because we don't have the ability to do that. I get it. By their fruits, you shall know them. I understand that. Uh, But it's a thing where my judgment and your judgment towards somebody else can only go as far as I don't want that in my life because that won't work for me. And then uh, let them stand or fall before God. Now, you know, you'll find variations of all this, and, you know, we're not here to get into all that, but it's a thing where this is a great chapter. And again, you know, it talks about a better resurrection. The young guy that asked the question, you know, about uh, losing your salvation last Thursday night out of Hebrews chapter 6, you know, again, uh, you can see how the book of Hebrews uh, does not fit into the New Testament Christian world or life that we we have. It just doesn't. It goes, uh, it goes uh, uh, way beyond that. He's dealing with the nation of Israel here and trying to show them. But again, you can see how this is, this is the way it works today. This is the way it is in the Laodicean church period. Nobody really knows the Bible. Really, nobody really understands the Bible. So 
they don't know what to do with the books of the Bible. This is why at Bible Institute, you know, we're in this section now that we're going to go through the three most controversial, damning books in the Bible, Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. And we started with Hebrews first. And it's a thing where, you know, I want you to understand. Once you understand how these three controversial books work and you get an outline and break it down, that pretty much eliminates anybody getting caught up into the heresies that are out there. The reason why people do is simply because they don't know what to do with these books. So they get in a place like Hebrews chapter 6, and, uh, you know, they don't know what to look for. They don't know what to read it. And it would suggest from what you're reading it, if you just take it at face value, it would suggest, even though it's not teaching that, that somebody could lose their salvation. If you, if you lose it, you can't ever get it back. That's what it's saying. Uh, and, of course, the charismatics, they like, to, they like to follow that line of reasoning, you know, and say this proves you can lose your salvation. But here again, they're not honest with their own heresy because if it were true that you could lose your salvation and you're using Hebrews chapter 6 to base it on, if that is true, then you could never get it back once you lost it without Christ coming back and dying again. But you see, their own heresy has flawed I mean, it's one thing to flaw truth and come up with heresy. It's one thing to flaw truth, come up with heresy, and then be flawed in your heresy. And it's a thing where if that is true and you're using Hebrews chapter 6 as a proof text for that, well, the bottom line is then that you're, uh, you know, you're never going to get it back. There's no way you can get it back because uh, once you lose it, uh, the only way it says in there is for you to, him to come down and die again, and he's not going to do that. So, you know... Even the, even the heresies are not consistent. I mean, that's the first thing that throws them into the uh, barrel of heresies is the fact that they're not consistent with truth. But even in their own heresy, they're not consistent. And, of course, that's just what you, that, that's what you find. And that is the mark today of the, of the you know, Laodicean church period, that uh, they don't know the Bible. So, you know, they hear something being taught and... It, they, they like it or they don't like it, and they accept it, and then they start believing it. But yet at the same time, as I said the other night, if you give that young guy or whoever it is uh, a Bible and tell him to explain Hebrews chapter 6 in detail, he couldn't do it. And uh, this is the problem. And it's a thing where, uh, you know, this is why it's the importance of really getting your Bible down. So he says, verse 36, Uh, and others had tr- uh, trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves and uh, of the earth. Now, this you don't have all this documented in the Bible. Maybe some of it is. The majority of it isn't. But that's beside the point. He's telling you all the other things that took place that in the details of them are not found uh, in the Bible. 
And I think uh, verse 38 is, is one of the greatest verses in the Bible for a Christian. Um, and it's nobody, I've never heard a message on it. I, I've never heard anybody even claim it. But I think it's one of the greatest verses about a Christian that you could ever, ever say. And it says in verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. And that is a great, great, great thing for a Christian. A Christian is so dialed in with God that they're not worthy of the world. I think that's one of the greatest testimonies that any Christian could ever have. Uh, you know, we look at we look at unsaved people and say, well, you're not worthy to go to heaven. And yet, you know, the world ought to look at us and say, you're so into this Bible and you're so into your church and you're so into this and into that and into the Lord and that's all you talk about. You're not worthy to go to this party with me tonight. You're not worthy to be part of what we're all going to do. Uh, you're going to be a wet blanket at the, you know, spring break deal. Uh, you're just, you're not worthy to be part of us. I think that is the greatest thing the world can ever say about any Christian is that you are not worthy to be part of what we're doing. Praise the Lord. And, uh, and, and that is a great verse, of whom the world was not worthy. Uh, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Uh, all, these, all these having obtained a good report through faith received not the promise. Now, that's a great verse because they, they were on a pilgrimage. They were on a journey. They were going someplace for God to do what God wanted them to do. But they never, they all exercised faith in their own lives, but they never got the promise. And of course, the promise to them was the millennial promise that the city that Abraham was looking for back there in chapter 11, uh, whose builder and maker was God. They never got the promise. The promise to them was the kingdom of heaven, a literal, visible kingdom that was promised to them that they never got. And of course, and these all having obtained a good report through faith, they all had a good report. They all had the right life. They all did the right things. But for them, it wasn't an individual promise. You got to see that. The promise in the Old Testament was never to any individual, but it was to a nation. And here's people who did right, got a good report with God, made the cut in God's Hall of Fame, but they never got the promise because the promise was never to any individual in the Old Testament. It was to a nation. Boy, you've got to see that. That is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. The promises of God in the New Testament, kingdom of God, are to you and me, individuals. Not to America, not to any nation, not to any city, to you as an individual. That's the difference. So it says in verse 39, And all these having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. And then verse 40, again, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without should not be made, uh, should not be made, uh, perfect. And of course, the better thing for us that he's telling them is what Christ did on the cross, better sacrifice, better, all the things, a better priesthood, a better sacrifice, better promises, uh, everything that he's talked about up to this point. And again, the, when, when Paul was writing this to the, uh, to the nation of Israel, 
Uh, he's showing them that what they have now in the New Testament is better than what they had in the Old Testament. And he's trying to make the comparison to show them how that, that works. And uh, it's a thing where it's so, once you set the context of the book of Hebrew, well, it's true of any book. Once you set the context of the book and you work the book within that context, the book pretty much opens itself up. And this is why I stress over and over and over again uh, that when people get into the Bible, uh, the first thing you have to do, no matter where you're at, is you have to establish a context. That will be the beginning of it unfolding itself to yourself. So, you know, that is the great chapter of chapter 11. He talks about faith, gives us examples of it, but he also shows us that God uh, looks at the, uh, he gives us the four, uh, uh, four things we have to have to be a faithful Christian. Then he shows us the two men that pre- present us with a faithful ministry. And then he shows us that there's another list of people here who they, uh, they didn't do everything right in their life, but they made God's hall of fame. And it goes back to what I always tell you, the key for you and for me at the judgment seat of Christ is simply going to be your attitude of heart toward that book that you have in your lap this morning and the Lord Jesus Christ. God at the judgment seat of Christ is not going to list your struggles. He's not going to list your failures. He didn't do it here. He's not going to go back and unearth every dumb, stupid thing that we did. That's not what it's about. God will deal with those things in this life through chastisement or dealing with you or you getting it right, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Now, when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, that's going to be just like it is here. Rahab wasn't, Rahab, uh, you know, when you go back uh, into the, um, in the Old Testament, it calls her, uh, when you study it, it talks about the fact, uh, let's see here, uh, it talks about the fact that uh, uh, in here it says, uh, by faith, the harlot Rahab. You see, the harlot aspect was her action. And she had to deal with that. But she's in God's hall of fame because of her attitude of heart. And it's a thing where it's, it's, when, when God looks at you and he looks at me, he looks at the attitude of heart. He'll deal with the action here, not at the judgment seat of Christ. It goes back to that old little three-point outline I gave you, sinner, son, and servant. And when you understand that concept, you know, that's what you have. Now, let's move into chapter 12. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight uh, and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, here again, oh, golly, how many times over the years have I heard some pastor take this chapter 12, verse 1, and talk about uh, the witnesses here uh, being our loved ones up in heaven? Uh, you know, and, you know, it's, it's a thing where this is what men do when it's, it's, they don't have any clue about the Bible. And again, let's just take the verse, look at it based on what we already know with a trained eye, and I would say if I was reading this, the first thing that would jump out to me, in fact, it's capitalized every word in my Bible, I don't know what it is in yours, is the word wherefore. And I would ask myself, 
in English grammar, what does wherefore mean? Wherefore means because of what he just said in chapter 11. Now, I'm going to show you something else. And of course, you know, they just skip right over the wherefore. Seeing we are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses. And of course, it's an easy thing if you're a preacher that wants to preach this but don't know your Bible to make these witnesses the great cloud of witnesses up there in heaven, looking down on you and us, you know, cheering us on or whatever you want to make it to be. And of course, the wherefore tells you that the witnesses here are all the folks in chapter 11 who stand as a witness to God's faith. Now, the doctrinal application, the witnesses will be the 144,000, Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 14 who are the witnesses in the tribulation period for the nation of Israel. So um, it's a thing where uh, you have that. And also notice it's a great cloud of witnesses. Now that would be, uh, that would be a, to me anyhow, that would be an indication that whatever the witnesses are doctrinally, it has something to do with the second coming of Christ when he comes back in a cloud. But these are the way that you, 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 you use the key words. And he says, witnesses that lay uh, so a great a cloud of witnesses, let us uh, lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us. Now, this is a great follow-up on the last chapter because the fact that all of these guys that we talked about last week, these 16 or 17 over the last couple of, of times together, they all were in God's Hall of Fame. We all know that they all failed. I mean, they all failed. They all had sin that did beset them and sin that became weight that that tripped them up. So he's showing us here that the wherefore is to learn from the examples of the people in the last chapter who were a great cloud of witnesses for God, but they also had their problems. And so will you and so will I. This goes along with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he talks about the fact that the things that happened to them in the Old Testament are for our examples and for our ensamples. They're for us. And it's a thing where, you know, we learn from that. It's for our admonition. And so, he, again, he, he, he makes this reference to the fact that, that they struggled, but they got through it. And what got them through was an ongoing building relationship with Christ based on faith. And you can see in every one of their life, that was the thing, or at least connected to what God saw, it goes back to their faith. And even though a man or a woman will struggle, they'll make some mistakes. I've seen it. I've seen it in ministry. You find those who struggle and fail and fall, and they don't give a rip. They could care less. And their whole life is just a a contentious screw-up one after the other, and you never see any evidence anywhere, shape, or form in anything in their life about God or caring about God or the Word of God. That is the one crap. And then you find people who do struggle, and many times they struggle with some of the same things. But they're always trying to get to that place. The struggle they have is a personal one, and they include God in it. And they, they have to go through things and they struggle with things. But they're always cognizant of the fact that they're not doing what's right. And they're trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. You know, it's a thing where, you know, and I, this is 
we've all seen this in ministry, you know, and we talk about it over and over again. And, you know, I've, I've seen people that, that uh, you know, they'll come to church, they'll start coming to church, they'll get, get going in for a while and then they'll fall out and then a year later they're back and a year later and then they're out and then they're back and then they're out and then they're back. And I know that we look at that and we see the inconsistency of that and I get all that. But you got to ask yourself, what is the difference between them? Something keeps bringing them back versus the person who leaves and never comes back. I mean, I know we put them both in the same category. I get that. I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I just listen to it. I get that. But there has to be something in that person that keeps coming back every, I mean, they may do that all their life and never get the victory. But I ask the question, then why come back? What's the point? You think after nine or 10 times, you'd say, this isn't worth it. I ain't going to make it. I ain't going. But they keep coming. And the reason why they keep coming, because God dealing with them in some way, some shape, some fashion. And they'll get out for a while, do some dumb things. God will convict them. And, but they just don't, many of them don't have the wherewithal to get past what they deal with. But you got to see it and you got to look at it. You got to realize that there has to be in God's mind, there has to be a difference between somebody like that than somebody that just walks out the door and goes back to the world and doesn't give any flip about anything that God is doing uh, and never come back uh, and, you know, and just get farther away. And I've watched people like that all my life. And sometimes, sometimes uh, they turn the corner and they make it. Sometimes they don't. But there's something in them that keeps bringing them back to a place where truth is. Even though, bless their hearts, they can't get it themselves. And it's a thing where, uh, you know, he's saying now that uh, we need to learn from these people, not just learn in chapter 11, not just learn about the great faith that they had. Don't just look at the, the first four guys as what you have to have to have a good working faith relationship with God. Don't look at Moses and Abraham and see what it takes to be a good minister. But look also at the fact that as good as they were, they struggled. And we could take the rest of your life and go through every one of those and list the things, the sins that so did easily beset them. You see, you you, got to understand that the devil wants to stop us. So he's going to put things in our lives that are going to be stumbling blocks. And I might just say, the more you get into the Bible, the more you grow and become closer to God, listen carefully, the stupider the things that mess you up are. A young Christian, you know, they just come into church and they, or somebody just gets saved to start coming to church. I know, I've seen it. We've all seen it. They just come out of the world. They got friends, and those friends want to pull them back. They haven't to the point yet where they can cut that off. So they think that they, you know, that they, um, you know, that they, they, they can't just don't want to cut them off. And that's and I get where they're at with that, but that becomes their downfall. 
and they get sucked back in. How many times have we seen it where a guy will start coming to church or a gal will start coming to church and they'll get plugged in and voila, out of the, out of the fog comes some guy or some gal. And now they have competition. And the person that they're into their life now that did actually, and, and I'll tell you, God didn't bring them in. The person that into their life now is there for one reason. That is to take you out of what God is beginning to do. See, those are big things. I've had people that we've come to this church that had drinking problems and alcohol was an albatross on their back. I've had them come in with drugs and they couldn't get past the drug. I get, those are big things. But the closer you get to the Lord and the more you get into the book and you say the drinking, the drugs, the parties, all those things, never again, don't ever kid yourself that there isn't a stumbling block still out there for us because the closer we get to God, the stupider the things that mess us up are. Now we get an attitude, see, over stupid stuff. Now we let something or somebody cancel us out because that's so stupid. We're not in danger of going out and getting drunk. We're not in danger of going out and getting, uh, getting higher. We're not in danger in doing all those things or somebody else coming into our life. And, no, we're way past that. Now, there's always going to be things in your life and my life that are going to try to upset us, beset us. And, of course, it says here, boy, I'll tell you, this is a great word, too. Um, it says... Uh, lay us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily. Easily. The devil knows the frailty of every man and woman on this planet, saved and lost. And he will simply, that you get past the point where you can be strong against the world, he'll screw you up over something and it is absolutely ridiculously stupid. Uh, he'll do it however he can do it because he wants to stop you. And he knows that the key to stopping a child of God will be and lie within their attitude. And if he can mess that up, he's got you. He's got you. And of course, this is why he, he lays it out. Now, the next verse is the answer. Verse 2 is the answer to the problem in one. Now, he says there that we are to run the race with patience. And uh, the ra- this race is a great race in the Bible, and you'll find it laid out for you in, in, in chapter 12, here, verses 1 and 2. You'll find it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. And then you'll find it again in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And uh, when you go study that out, you'll find that uh, we're all going to run this race. The race is likened to an athletic competition. But yet at the same time, uh, you're going to find that there are rules to this race. And uh, it, it in itself is a great little study or a great little sermon, however you want to put it, or a great little devotional you want to give somebody. I think there's four or five rules to this race. And... Uh, you know, it's a thing where, uh, you know, I can't remember them all. I think one of them is no false starts. Make sure that you, you start when the gun goes off. Uh, two is that make sure you run lawfully. Three is make sure you stay in your own lane when you're running. And uh, the fourth one is run as hard as you can. And, uh, you know, and I know what the fifth one was. And in the race you have, you have, you, you jump the hurdles. Uh, a guy who's a great 
runner who jumps hurdles, he's taught not to look at the hurdles. And that's a great analogy for the Christian. You don't look at the hurdles. You just, you just sail over them. And so here's how you do that. And verse 1, wherefore, shows us that all of these great people by faith, they had issues. And you, as good as you are, as faithful as you are, as deep in the Bible as you know, for you and for me, the things that beset us are going to be stupid stuff, silly things, things that don't really matter, but because you're not going to go out and get drunk anymore, devil has to use something. And of course, you know, you notice, and I just say this, most of you have been around here for a while. Now, we've had people leave the church because of sin. No question about that. We get that. But you take somebody that has been into this church or in the ministry for a long time, you watch. When they leave and get their nose bent out of joint, it isn't because they're back in the world. It isn't. They hadn't been in ministry in church for 20, 30 years or 10, 15 years and suddenly decide to go off the, off the boat and go out and get drunk. Every, you just look at it. Don't Just sit down. Go, go this afternoon, turn the lights off, put some soft music on, and lay back and just think this through. They didn't leave because of sin. We've got them that leave because of sin. We have them leave because, you know, they're into some, some whatever. We, you have that. But the ones that are, are quote-unquote, you know, more spiritual, mature, when a person like that gets their nose bent on a joint and leaves, it's always over something stupid. Some attitude they got. It wasn't the fact that they went out, went out and got drunk. or they No, no. They copped an attitude over something, and that was all they needed. Just look at it. Young Christians, baby Christians, will always trip over sin that is major chunks. Mature people, God's people who should know better will always trip over something stupid. That's the way it works. Seen it all my ministry. Stop and think about it. I mean, just, just stop and think about it. You know, it's a thing where, you know, it, and, and, for, and to make it even worse, for a young Christian, I get it. I get it. But for an older Christian, their first failure is the fact that 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 attitude never should have got off the ground because the Bible gives you a protocol by which you deal with things like that so they don't get to that level. But nobody ever does. Most don't. So once we, once we understand verse 1, now we got to get the answer to this. And the answer for us begins in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. I'll just stop. I can just, we can all go home right now. That's the answer. You get your eyes off yourself. You get your eyes off what you think is the problem. You get your eyes off whatever little thing over there, and you start to looking unto Jesus. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off of somebody else. Get your eyes off of whatever, and simply looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, notice the things here you're supposed to look at. Now, in this chapter here, in the first three or four verses, I want you to know, there's some things you're to look for, and then there's some things you're to consider. You want to get past wherever you're at in your, in your struggles? I would say this to anybody out there that's listening to me, that you left the church and you had a bad attitude, and now you realize how stupid it was. You want to fix it? Here's what you do. But you won't. The first thing, you look somewhere. And I'll tell you right now, you've been looking in the wrong places. You've been looking at the wrong things. So you got to change where you look. And you got to look unto Jesus. Now, the first thing when you look, here's what you say. Mark these down. The first thing you're going to look for, that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. That's what the chapter before us was all about, wasn't it, faith? You see, you got the guys back there in the last chapter who were faithful guys. And we can all learn from that. Now, in this chapter, we see who the author of that faith was. Who's the author of your faith? So the first one is, you look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The second thing you want to look at who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Then there's another key word that puts this into the Jews in the tribulation is the word endure, obviously, but we're looking at it here for us now. So the second thing that when you look to Jesus, you want to see uh, what he endured. And I just have one question for you and for me. You know why you have to endure things in life, but you find no joy in them? You know why we complain about our enduring? You know why we, we get our nose bent at a joint because something doesn't go right uh, and we have to endure things and we think it's unfair, we think it's unjust? You know why we leave churches and get mad because of the fact that we, when we have to endure something, that it, it, it to the place where it, it, it's a sin that easily besets us? I'll tell you why. Because you don't see the joy in your enduring. You know why you don't see the joy you're enduring? Because you never looked at him, at Jesus, who's the author of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You've got to get your joy in enduring through his joy in enduring. And the only way you do that is to look unto Jesus. The next thing, despising the shame. Now, this will go to back to, you know, um, the, the, on the cross that he took your sin. He became what you and I are, a sinner. For he hath made to be him to be sin for us who knew no sin. So this one here goes back and helps me better appreciate what he did for me. You know, we talked about the two John 3, 16s last week, and we're going to move on in that chapter this week. But I told you how that the whole Christian world loved John 3, 16, but the whole Christian world has no idea for John 3, 16. We can talk about the love of God in a blanket way, but no, a child of God does not perceive the love of God in the right way. If he did, if she did, 
we wouldn't be the way we are. And of course, the way you perceive that is found right here. You look unto Jesus. You see him as the author of what you have. You see that, uh, that, uh, that what he endured was a joy to him, not a labor. And, and then you see that, uh, uh, that, uh, that he was despising the shame. He did that for you and for me. And of course, that shows me that, you know, that that's what I'm supposed to do for him. And, you know, and then the next thing he says here, uh, and is sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, you know what that is for me? That's my victory. That's my victory. That's why I don't let little stupid things bother me. That's why I, I, I want to be above those things. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. You know why? Because he sat at the right hand of the throne of God, and that covers it all as far as I'm concerned. So now I can endure with joy. I can, I can take the shame that he took. I understand now that he is the author of my faith. And at the end of the day, no matter what I got to endure, I'm not going to let the little stupid things of life take that from me. And, uh, and the reason I'm not is because he went through all those things. And where's he at today? He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me ask you a question. We go through all the things. If he would come right now, where would we be seated? Okay. And, uh, gee, I don't know. So first off, there's some things that we need to look for. And then there's some things uh, in verse 3. He says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest be wearied and faint in your minds. Then there's some things we need to consider. You see, it isn't enough just to look unto Jesus. You have to consider some things about him. And I have a message I preached on this. In fact, I think I gave you the outline last Sunday morning, I think, or maybe it was Thursday. I don't remember. It says, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest be, oh, you be wearied and faint in your minds. And I, I want to tell you, there's the key to every one of us. The last part of verse 3. Faint in your minds. If you don't keep your mind focused on looking at him and considering him, you are going to faint in your mind. I'm telling you right now, you are going to faint in your mind. And you are not going to joy your enduring. You're going to endure your enduring. And it's a thing where it all starts with you looking at Jesus. He's the author. Put it in its right place. He's the author. He's the finisher. And I like that because it, the author and the finisher. The author means at the beginning. The finisher means at the end. And at the end, where is he? Seated at the right hand of God the Father. He got the victory. No matter what he went through, no matter what he endured, no matter what happened, at the end, he got the victory. Do you? Do I? There's God's people who struggle with the stupidest stuff all their lives and never get the victory. And yet I'm telling you, when you get home to heaven, you'll be in God's hall of fame. There's no question about it. You're saved. But boy, I'm telling you, it makes life down here pretty miserable. 
So it says, for consider him. Now, when I preach this message, I preach it, you consider him three ways. I mean, this is my message. If you preach it, you can consider him four ways, five ways. Come up with 10, I don't care. But when I preach this, I'm in most Baptist churches that you can only preach for 15, 20 minutes, so I just got to give them three. But I, when, I, when I lay this out here, and I have the outline right here, consider him. First thing I consider is who he was. And that, he was God's son. And that would go back to him being the author, see, and the finisher. And I would, if I'm preaching this, I would go through a great, 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 great part, you know, 20, 30 minutes on, on, on who he was. Then I would say I consider not only who he was, but I would consider what he endured. And then I would go in on the cross and how he died on the cross and all, all those things. And then I would, I would, the last thing I would say, and then I consider uh, what he became. And that's where I bring it back to personal to me and to you, that he became sin for us. And uh, it's a thing where, and, and I would point out in verse 3, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. It was the most contradictive thing in the universe to acquaint my Jesus with my sin. But that's what God did. Now, when you look unto him and you consider him, you tell me, you tell me, you tell how me, and this is the only way you get over those sins that Seth do easily beset you. You tell me, you tell me how you keep your stupid attitude. You help me how you leave a church because, well, I don't like this because my nose get bent at a joint because I wasn't treated right or somebody said this or somebody did this. You tell me. If that's what it takes to take you out of church, Jesus Christ on the way to the cross, not even experiencing the pain of the cross. He was called everything. He was beat. He was kicked. He would have found a, he would have found a thousand of your excuses not to go to the cross. But he, he didn't, did he? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. They, and, uh, you, you know, you know some, somebody asked me the other day, <laughs> is there not anybody in your world that you just can't stand or don't want to be around? And I, I, I said, no, no. I mean, I may not be pleased with everybody. I may not quote-unquote, like everybody. But I don't have the luxury to just cast off everybody because that maybe of what they said about me or did to me or this or that. If, if that would have been the case and I, and I would have that luxury, then Jesus would have had all the reason in the world not to let me in. See? See how unchristian Christians become? And yet they're on their way to heaven. We don't have that luxury. I don't. Maybe you do. I don't. And it's a thing where, uh, you know, we, we don't have the, the right to let things, uh, compared to looking at him and considering him, we don't, have the, we don't have the right to just do whatever we want to do. And I'm telling you again, for 
older Christians that get into the Word of God and grow, don't you ever think that because you now know your Bible or you teach the Bible or you love the Bible or you would never go back to the world that there aren't the sins that are going to easily beset you. They're just not going to be the big ones. But there will be stupid ones. Because we should know better. And the only way you get past that is to look under Jesus, who's the author and the finisher, beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, and then you consider him. And I would hope that you would take those three and add ten more to it. But that's what it takes. That's what it takes. And if we don't do that, and this is why God's people leave churches, good people, they faint in their minds. They're not bad people. They're not going to go out and, you know, they're not, they're, they're not people who are going to go out and do some terrible sin. They're not going to uh, leave church and go out and get drunk or go back to the world. Or that. They're not. They're good people. They just faint in their minds. And they fell into the trap of right here. They thought because they had been in church for 30 years or te- taught the Bible or been saved for 30 years or however long and done ministry and all this stuff, they thought they were above the sin that does so easily beset us. And, and, and partly they're true. It's right. They were above the drugs. They were above the world. They were above all the major iceberg things that sank the Titanic. But it's those little things. It's those little stupid things that trips us up. You know, it would be one thing if you were running an Olympic marathon where you jumped the hurdles. I think they call that the catheter of dawn or something like that. It would be one thing. It would be, that's not, that's not right. That's not right. It would be one thing if you, it would be, <laughs> I just got what I just said. It would be one thing if you, if you were running an Olympic race and you went to clear one of those and you got caught in it and tumbled all over the place. Everybody would say, oh man. And they would say, boy, he really, they really gave it their best shot. Everybody would be okay with that. But it would be really something else, wouldn't it? If you're watching that, the gun goes off, the whole world's watching the Olympics, and some guy's running around that thing, and he trips over just a little pebble. And that little pebble takes him out of the race. It's one thing if the pylon takes you out, but how stupid it would be if an Olympic runner who trained run all his life who ran how many races before he got the Olympics, tripped over just a little stone, a little pebble, a little rock, caught it on his toe, got under his shoe, turned his ankle this way, down he goes. See the difference? I understand. I don't agree with it, and I would certainly try to help him, but I totally understand how people... Because uh, it's been in my world all my life. I mean, this is not my first rodeo. I've seen this thing happen over and over and over again. And I've seen people come in here and, uh, you know, and last for a year or a year and a half or maybe two years or maybe not that long. 
and back to the world they go. We had a kid here, this has been several years ago, I don't even remember his name, but he was a nice kid. He went to someplace uh, at a conservatory or music place, and he played a musical instrument. I can't remember what he played. And he came to church here, and he was the nicest kid on the planet. And really, I thought he had really great potential. And he came for about, what, six or seven, eight months maybe? I think somebody was discipling him. I don't, don't, I don't even remember. I just remember the story. And then he quit coming. And then I, I found out uh, later on that uh, he was going to IHOP. Not to get breakfast. <laughs> the, the IHOP, you know, the International Hellhole of Association of Charismatics. And, uh, you know, and I thought to myself, and I asked somebody, I said, well, how did he ever get there? Ah, here it comes. Guess. Guess, guess, guess. Raise your hand. Just guess. Rest and tell me to help me. Guess. guess. Yes. A girl. No, he was gay. It was a guy, but good shot. No. no, A girl. A girl. He met this girl. She goes to IHOP. And um, bye-bye, Jesus. It's just the way it works. And I've seen that all my life. I understand that. I get it. But I'm going to tell you, you take somebody that's been in the ministry or someone who has been in the Bible, who knows the Bible, and you're not, I, I, I would never worry about you showing up at IHOP. But to, 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 to let the stupid things in this world, and that we all have to face them, everybody, including me. Hey, I probably have to deal with it more than anybody. Because you may be just deal with who you work with or whatever. I have to deal with it all the time. And I just can't afford to let those things, because I know me. I know me. I mean, I, you know, you're, I'm a nice guy. You love me and I know this and I do everything. But I want to tell you, there's a side to me that you don't want to see. And I keep it suppressed. It's coming out right now. You know? I keep it suppressed. And, and I do that because of the fact I know me. <clears throat> I know me. In my training in life and military and all those things, I wasn't trained to be a Sunday school teacher. And I'm just telling you, I just, I, 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 I have to stay two things. I have to keep looking at him and considering him. And when I put that message together, I preached it probably a hundred times in the last 30, 40 years. I put it together based on where I was at. Not where I was, thought the people were I was going to preach to. And those things have served me well, because I'm telling you, if you don't look unto Jesus, the author, and you don't consider him, you'll be out of this race before you get in. And many of God's people today are. And they're good people. He says in verse 4, You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now that's a good verse. He's simply saying, you know what? When it comes to the things in your life that will take you out of this race, you ought to be willing to shed blood over it. And that's what he's saying. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. And uh, there ought to be some things in life that, uh, that you would, uh, you know, in, in fact, you know, the Bible makes a, 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 an application to this, not in to us in Matthew where he says, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. If thy left hand offend thee, cut it off. Well, that's here again, we're dealing with the Jew here, see? So that would fit into that. 
But for you and for me, it's not telling to do that. I actually ain't going to believe this. In fact, he just somebody called me about four or five years ago. He just passed away. He was up there in that uh, uh, Jessica um, old folks home there right off of Woodson, uh, right not too far from my house. And the lady that uh, called me and said he passed away. And he was a guy that back in the day, he, he, was, a, he was a brilliant guy at one point in time. And he was a, um, you know, he had a degree and he worked in the corporate world. And then I, I don't, you know, I don't remember or I never knew, but something happened that threw him into, I don't know. It was like he was a, he was like a 12 year old. He was just like, he, he just couldn't function. And we'd have to pick him up and take him to church. And he lived in homes and he was blind in one eye. And he was blind in one eye because he wanted to find God in one of the homes he was in. And he read a Bible in the Bible where it says, if, and he had a problem with sin. And he read in the Bible, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. So he took a screwdriver and jammed it in his eye uh, following what the Bible said. Now that's, that's pretty a literal interpretation of the Bible, man, I'll tell you. I mean, uh, that's, that's one that's one misapplication you can't go back and fix too well. And, and he was a great guy. But it was a thing where, you know, he saw that verse and he took it literally. And when Jesus is making that reference back there to the nation of Israel, he's speaking figuratively. What he's saying is, don't let anything you see, anything you do, put you in the lake of fire. So he's making an analogy, but he's not telling him to do that. Well, here, you can make the application to the Jew. Uh, But for you and for me, he's saying the basic same thing. To resist sin, we ought to be willing to shed blood if that's what it takes. Our own, that's what I'm saying. Uh, Not literally, but that ought to be your attitude toward it. it. It should be. And, of course, now we get into the great verse 5 here. Uh, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And now we can see the double application here. Obviously, the my son in the context is Israel. And all of this from 12 down is dealing with Israel, looking back at the people we saw in the last chapter and now they're running a race in the tribulation with a great cloud of witnesses so you can see all that and now the chastisement that he's talking about here doctrinally is the Jew in the tribulation and they're told that if they're going to get through that they got to look unto Jesus and consider him and that's exactly what they got to do in the tribulation but here now he's talking to them as the chastening here for the nation of Israel is a father-son chastening. But it fits to you and me too because as Israel as a nation is God's son and they get chastised in the tribulation, you and me as individuals are God's son and we know that God chastises us. So this part here is good for us. Not directly written to us, but obviously it applies to us across that board. Because he says in verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. 
Uh, if you endure chastening, there again, the word endure. You want to, you ought to go through the Bible sometime when you catch them and mark all the word endure or enduring because they're always going to give you the context of the tribulation. If you endure chastening, God dealeth you as with sons. For what son is he who the father chasteneth not? But if he be without chastisement, whereon all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Now, it's clear here that, um, and this is a great verse not only to Israel, but it's a really good verse in a practical way to us, because this does fit in, because God's chastisement is across the board, either to Israel in the Old Testament or me and you as individuals in the New Testament. And what he's saying here is, is that God chastises every child of God in an inspirational way. And if you see somebody that goes through their life oblivious to God and there's no chastisement or hand of God in their life, then he uses the word that you are a bastard. Now, a bastard is an illegitimate child. What he's saying is here that that guy is probably not saved, or woman, whoever, is probably not saved. And of course, uh, we see here in chapter 12, defined for us, both for Israel and for you and for me, the purpose of chastisement. He tells us that God is going to chasten us. He's not going to let it get away with it. And, you know, and here again, I go back to chapter 11. You see the example is if we would take character studies of every guy listed back there. He may be in God's Hall of Fame, but they all stumbled and fell on something, and you can go back into their life and see how God dealt with them, chastised them. And yet he chastises Israel before their unbelief as a nation. And yet in the New Testament, we are his sons individually, and if we don't do right, we'll experience chastisement. And, uh, you know, and it's a thing where you just, he says, if you endure chastising, God deals with you as with sons. And the way you endure chastisement is by understanding chastisement. And of course, an unsafe person can't understand that. And an unsafe person doesn't get chastised by God anyhow. You know, you see people who, I, I know people, and here again, I'm not a heart reader. I don't, I don't claim to be. But I know that in Christianity, there, in each of our lives, there is what we would call evidence of salvation. I do know that what the Bible does say is if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away. I don't understand the doctrine of repentance. When I see a man or a woman um, that, um, and, and have a relationship with them, know them, I mean, not just a quick you know, snapshot picture of them. When I see uh, uh, someone who, uh, over the period of time, that there's never been one ounce of anything spiritual at all in them, no evidence whatsoever, not even a smidgen, that there was no, obviously, repentance in their world, there was no consciousness of God, and there seems to be no flipping care whether whatever they do. And yet their life goes on and on and on, you know, from the Bible. And again, I'm, you know, I don't see their heart, but I'm just saying, from what you do have, uh, from what the Bible just says, that there's a good chance. I'm not saying they are or they're not. I'm saying there is a good chance that people like that, you know, have never truly been saved. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where it's just the way that it is today. You know, I, I say it all the time, and I make no apology for this. 
I say it all the time that I think that most of the people in Christianity today that claim to be saved probably have never really been saved. And I say that based on the fact that there is no evidence. Uh, look at the things that they, they put in their world. They go right back to the world to do the same things. Based on the Bible, that just cannot be. And so I, and then I add to that the see in church that most of these people went to churches where they do not have a Bible. Uh, so when they got saved, it was a very loose Laodicean salvation. Nobody dealt with them on repentance. Nobody dealt with them on anything that needed to be dealt with. And, uh, you know, if, if you just got to be careful with that kind of stuff. You really do. But at the same time, you know, I understand that it's, uh, he says in verse 9, furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected of us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Now, that's a good verse. Now he makes an analogy to us, you see, that we can all get. And yet at the same time, he puts the pressure on parents to discipline their children and to chastise them uh, when they get out of line. So he kind of covers a couple of different things here. He says, furthermore, uh, we have had fathers of our flesh that corrected of us. So if that's true, then, you know, how much more should we obey our heavenly father or understand that, I mean, uh, um, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 7, I think it's verse 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things unto them that ask him? Good parents, as good as they are, are still evil. They're sinners. And if you can figure out that you have to chastise your kids, how much more should we figure out that God is a perfect Father is not going to let us get away with it? And of course, you know, he doesn't. And so we, we and, and there's a phrase here I want you to see where it says, the father of spirits. That throws a lot of people sometime. That'll go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7, uh, and simply, uh, all spirits come from God. So he's the father of spirits. All spirits come from God. All spirits go back to God. And you are, you know, we're, we're, so he's the father of spirits. And then verse 10, and here's, here's, here's understanding chastisement. For they, verily, your earthly parents, for a few days chasing us after their own pleasure. Now, that doesn't mean that they enjoyed beating the fire out of you. Doesn't mean it didn't either. But it simply means for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, for their own pleasure. That's an old English phrase that means to do the right thing to, down the line, take pleasure out of your life by taking chastisement in your life. Now, that's what it's saying here. But he, God, for our own profit, that we might be partakers of his promises. You see, where a parent does it because they want you to live right and do what's right, God does it because he wants you to be a partaker of his promises. And he knows that as long as you're out of fellowship, you can't do that. And then he, verse 11, now no chastening for the present seeming to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Now, there is the, there is the uh, great verse 
that, um, that helps us put it all together here. And it is the verse that says that at the time you have to go through chastisement, whether it's a child or not. And I say in the Bible, there is a biblical process for chasing chastening your children. We call it corporal punishment, uh, physical uh, 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 punishment. There's a process that you use, and it's based on the process right here that God uses. And that is that when he chastises us, he doesn't do it because he's angry. So you don't ever want to chase, chastise your kids out of your anger. He doesn't do it because he's mean and wants to hurt you. So you don't do your child that way. The verse says that he does it uh, even though it may be grievous. He does it for our profit, the verse before, and he does it that it might yield something. What does it yield? It sole purpose of chastisement for Israel and for you and for me is to bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And of course, that is, that is what it's for. So, most of God's people, and we'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow, most of God's people have no idea of how to look at chastisement, if they even know anything about it at all. They have no clue of how God deals with them. They have no understanding. Israel certainly doesn't because look what's happened to them in the last 2,000 years and they still can't get it. And, uh, you know, I remember I was looking at a documentary and they were, they were uh, it, was on a, uh, it was on one of the concentration camps during the war and they were actually interviewing survivors of it that was still alive in the 70s, you know, and they were Jews. And they, they would talk and they would talk about their experience and how it was and almost every one of them, every one of them said, you know, we cried out to God every day. And God didn't hear us. And one guy said, the biggest question I have is why God would allow his people to go through what we went through. And I sat there and looked at that and I thought to myself, that is so typical. This guy doesn't even have a clue that when God sent them their Messiah, when he's hanging on the cross or before the cross, the Roman Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. And then when he's on the cross, they're crying out, his blood be upon us and our people. And he cannot figure it out why God didn't hear them. Where was God? He is listening to the pre-taped message, we have no king but Caesar. And uh, they don't get it. And most of God's people don't get it either. They don't understand why the chastisement comes into their life. They don't understand how they should look at it, and they don't understand what God's overall purpose is for it. Consequently, you know, they, they, they don't get it. And he says, now no chastening for the present seeming to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. There's a reason for it. 
And the reason for it, first and foremost, is God loves you. He's his child. He would be an improper father if he didn't discipline his children, just like so many parents today are improper parents because they don't discipline their children. And it's a thing where, you know, he, he, he's better than that. But he does it out of love, not out of anger, not out of revenge, not out of, you did this to me, I'm going to do this to you. That's not God. He does it out of love as a father for his children for the sole express purpose for it to be to our profit that we become partakers of his promises. And that's just, that's just where it's at. So we have seen now, we finished up chapter 11. Now we see the men and women over there who are great examples of faith. We see now that they are great witnesses, 12-1, that they are in a race as we are. And then we also see that every one of them had an issues in their life, just like you and I will have issues in our life. When we catalog them, and a young Christian or somebody just saved will have major issues. We will have stupid issues. But it doesn't matter if they're the size of the iceberg that sank the Titanic or just an ice cube in your drink. We stumble over them. And uh, it, it, it stops the race. And it's a thing where the only way now you know that you get around that is by looking unto and considering. And then you understand God's hand of chastisement. If you can get those three things down, if you can look unto Jesus and put those things in perspective and you can consider him and get those things down, add some more to them, then you'll better understand. And what he says in verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation, see, which speaketh unto you as unto children. You forgot that. And the problem with God's people today, some God's people did forget it. Most of God's people never knew it to begin with. And that goes back to the mess that we're in in Christianity. So anyway, we'll hold up there.